You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're at the Laguna Negra. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber. I am the host of this episode and I am at La Laguna Negra, high in the Picos de Urbion mountains above Vinuesa, setting for a somewhat acclaimed 1912 novel written by Antonio Machado in which three avaricious sons with designs on their father's estate plot to kill him and dump his body in the Laguna Negra, or Black Lake, only to lose their way on the night of the planned assassination and stumble into, as Machado wrote, the clear and silent water beneath the huge rock wall where vultures nest and echoes sleep. Well, it was a wily old Spanish vulture who wasn't nesting but swooping down upon his prey this afternoon. We'll find out whom in just a second. Well, hopefully neither plotting my murder nor falling into a black lake in the not Watford environs is not Lionel Burney. N- nearly said Nairo Burney there. That, that Nairo Burney. <laughs> oh. Lionel Mann. Um, <laughs> Lionel Mann here from not Watford. Just a little aside on not Watford. Uh, I gather some of the Tour of Britain teams, in particular Ineos Grenadiers, are staying in Watford tonight as they make their way from... Uh, I think it's, uh, well, it's Nottinghamshire and then it resumes in Felixstowe tomorrow. So uh, the Watford is practically the centre of the cycling universe this evening. Um, wow. Um, uh, the Grove, they staying at, anyone staying at the Grove? No, Famous golf no, course it, resort? It is a, it is a, a nice resort. Uh, well, a resort. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an old uh, water company building i believe uh, that was converted into a luxury hotel um it's hosted so tiger woods has played there i've played there in fact golf let's not talk about golf we talked about golf quite let's a lot not, last night let's yeah let's not go into all the things you've got in common with tiger woods um lionel um yesterday i did talk about how gorgeous this setting was i remembered it from 2020 it was a pretty wet day on that occasion so we probably didn't see it in its best light but i'm i'm hoping that you guys watching on tv were able to appreciate just how stunning um this setting is as i said in the picos de urbion not far if anyone watched the vuelta burgos a couple of weeks ago not far from the iconic uh, laguna neila finish um there that's a fixture they do it every year in the vuelta burgos there's also a laguna negra one of the lagunas de neila is also a laguna negra a black lake there's always a black lake but um yeah absolutely gorgeous spot here i'm just sitting adjacent to the podium where well we're going to find out who won the stage um where he collected his laurels um, a few minutes ago and everything's being packed up here and um yeah as i say really well somewhere where i can see myself lying i can imagine myself just disappearing into the woods here and never coming back Um, (laughs) although there are a lot of there are a lot of insects so i don't know about stumbling into a black lake but i might be eaten alive by they're not mosquitoes they're much bigger and more vicious than mosquitoes but if you could just get to um, madrid first then that would be a bonus for the podcast and all our listeners was it was it a pretty stage on TV? Yeah, it did look nice. It, it did TV. look nice. It had me Googling, getting on Google Maps to see where the nearby towns were. Well, <laughs> where is the nearby town? I was wondering where on earth you're going to be staying. Soria. Ah, okay. Yeah, Soria. Where, yeah, it's, it's not too far. I think 40-minute drive for us um, this evening. But it's a, it's a part of Spain that's not very well known, certainly to foreigners. No, it did look very nice. It did look very nice. There's a sort of the, I don't know what the, 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 the equivalent phrase it feels like real spain very much feels like real spain uh, watching on tv today um mm, as opposed as opposed to fake spain well um, there's quite a lot of fake well, spain well, i think you know all the holiday maker areas i feel are fake spain probably offending loads of listeners who th- who think it's fantastic yeah, but, yeah. for holidays or training camps i mean it has it has some merits but i don't know as i said in our preview you know i prefer ham on spain to ham egg and chip spain put it that way on that, on that rather contentious note, Lionel, I think we should tell people what happened today in the tale of the etapa. El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa.
Well, first of all, Daniel, no, the Ineos Grenadiers are not staying at the Grove, but they're staying at the Premier Inn, Croxley Green. Uh, less salubrious, certainly not a resort hotel. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no golf course at the Premier Inn, but a full English breakfast is guaranteed. Anyone wants to go and stalk Tom Pidcock and co, that's where they need to go this evening. Uh, they'll have to set off early uh, for the stage start in Felixstowe tomorrow, but all of our attention here is on the Vuelta, of course, and it was stage 11. Felt a bit like hump day today. You know the phenomenon, the Wednesday is hump day, the middle day. Mm. It's also, it's the, well, the middle day of the week. It's also the middle day of the Vuelta. Kind of all counts down to Madrid from here, doesn't it? And it was a bit of a hump day type of stage, wasn't it? And obviously, you know, not so for the 26 riders who made it into the break. And anyone listening to last night's episode probably would have picked up the clue from Geraint Thomas that they were going to try something today. Geraint Thomas and Philippe Ogana, yesterday's stage winner, both got into the break for Ineos Grenadiers and they quickly built a pretty healthy five-minute lead, which stayed constant, more or less, all the way to the bottom of the climb. Should just mention uh, Juan Ayuso, who's very well placed overall, crashed in the neutral zone. Well, I have to assume that wasn't terribly serious, but it, it was the first... Uh, thing of note to happen today the brake rode very happily together to the bottom of the climb the first rider to try his luck on the climb was Paul Auerselin of Total Energies he went clear with around 10 kilometers to go and that's when we saw Filippo Ganna do a huge hour record style turn uh, leading that group of breakaway riders whittling it down a bit and catching Auerselin with three and a half kilometers to go with around two and a half kilometres to go, it looks like he was going a bit too hard for his teammate Geraint Thomas, who was drifting backwards. Hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that maybe. Interesting, yeah. We'll hear, we will hear um, something to that effect in a few minutes. Oh, I like the way how my independently prepared tale of the etapa tees up your uh, material gathered there on the ground in Spain, Daniel. Almost as if we're on the same wavelength occasionally. Anyway, uh, Andreas Kron, who won the slightly lukewarm stage right at the beginning in Barcelona, he was very alert in there, as were Roman Gregoire and Rudy Mollard of Groupama. But it was Jonathan Caicedo of EF Education who launched uh, what looked like it might be a successful attack but Geraint Thomas reacted to that and uh, by that stage it was down to a sort of knot of eight riders spread across the road and then Caicedo went very hard just over a kilometre to go and again I thought maybe that would be the move that would have it but no, Jesus Harada of Cofidis, the reborn Cofidis team after their stage wins at the Tour de France he opened up the sprint from quite a long way out and won it. That's his third Vuelta stage win. Remember, he won ahead of Dylan Turns on a not dissimilar sort of uphill finish in 2019. And he also won a stage last year. He's taken the King of the Mountain jersey as a result of gathering the points at the top of the climb as well. So a stage win for Harada ahead of Gregoire, who also had Lewis Askey, his teammate in there, two very young riders for Group Arm at FDJ. They had their childminder, the grown-up Rudy Mollar in there as well. Andreas Krom was third, Caicedo fourth, and Geraint Thomas fifth. The GC race, well, really not much doing at all. Kian Outgebrooks of Bora Hansgrohe attacked, and, uh, well, he was briefly threatening Hugh Carthy's 13th place overall, so Carthy reacted. Uh, but in the end, Carthy finished ahead of Alpgebrooks and, as indeed did all of the GC riders, Remco Evenepoel was really the only rider to have, a, uh, well, stretch his legs really in the finale, accelerated with around 250 metres to go, but very much a low-key run into the line, so as you were on the GC. Lionel, we'll hear a lot more about the GC battle or the lack of any real GC battle today in a few moments in part two. But you did mention Kian. You did mention and try to pronounce Kian Utebrooks, <laughs> um, <laughs> as we've all done and failed to do on several occasions um, in this Vuelta España already. Um, there were a few questions raised after his pretty, well, pretty mediocre-looking time trial yesterday. Um, he lost quite a lot of time. And, well, indeed, this morning... At the start in Lerma, he was able to shed some light on exactly what 
was wrong yesterday. So let's hear from him, shall we, about that. Let's say that, uh, that it started uh, slowly, uh, already also a bit before the Vuelta, but yeah, now, uh, yesterday was really bad, let's say, on the bike. Uh, when I did the recon, I, I was really like white from the pain and vomiting feeling. I have uh, Vaseline with me in the pocket for during this stage. And uh, just, yeah, don't think too much about it. And uh, yeah, the, the problem is like, uh, it's a bit everywhere. Like if you have it on one side, you move a bit to the other side, but then down, there is no way out. <laughs> so Lionel, uh, well, we heard about the history of saddle swords in the Vuelta a España, or one very famous incident involving a saddle store in the Vuelta a España. It effectively cost Sean Kelly, or one, uh, one did cost Sean Kelly a Vuelta a España. We don't expect it to cost Kian Uterbrooks a Vuelta, but I wonder today, I didn't get to speak to him after the finish, but I wonder today whether um, he he intended to well, primarily climb out of the saddle up to La Laguna Negra and gain some relief that way. Um, either that or he was just being bloody-minded and decided that um, it was going to be painful whatever he did so he might as well try to ride through the pain but not ideal at all is it um particularly on a well on a grand tour where there really is no respite uh no not with uh half of the race still to go that's for sure just on kian unpronounceable surname our very good friend charlotte elton our expert on all things flemish did send me a voice note with the correct pronunciation I'm still going to mangle it because us, not Watford folks, do find the Flemish language quite difficult to get our small, underdeveloped tongues around. Outdubrooks, I believe it is, not Outdubrooks. And it translates as out of the pan. Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, he, he's someone who's very well liked um, has become very well liked already in the in a short space of time in the welter mix zone certainly in the mornings where the riders come to do their interviews so it's with some affection that he has been nicknamed by various crews the unpronounceable um, and uh, I'm sure that if he knew that he would take it in very good heart I think he listens to the cycling podcast on occasion um, he's certainly done interviews with us he's, he did uh, a very long interview and detailed interview with our late great colleague Richard Moore and um, well I think we mentioned that earlier in the Welter you can find that can't you Lionel it's still online it certainly um, is listen it's to that. from January 2022 yep. if people want to go back and find it yeah um, Lionel we'll hear more about Jesus Herrada and his history his um, very fruitful relationship with the Vuelta a España later in the episode but you know you, you mentioned the fact that it was maybe or you sort of hinted that it was maybe a little bit anticlimactic in the sense that the GC battle didn't really materialise but a rider like Jesus Herrada um, he, he's one of those riders who has a bit of a habit of winning stages pooping the party of the GC riders or pooping the party of the spectators who are expecting hoping for a GC battle that doesn't come to fruition and you know when I was watching win today another rider who's now retired I think he retired recently came to mind who had a habit of doing a similar thing and that was Jan Polanch um, he did it on a couple of occasions it, f- it feels like he did it on about 50 occasions I think he did it once or twice in the Giro but he's that kind of rider isn't he Herada? he is yeah um, and it was that kind of break wasn't it it was strong enough to get away build that lead stay away and I think that gave the the GC teams and riders you know all of the encouragement they needed just to kind of keep a lid on things until well they were practically in touching distance of the line should just mention very briefly I don't know whether you saw this at the finish line but the poor old Cofidis Swanier got rugby tackled out of the way I know the Rugby World Cup starts on Friday but uh, it was quite a high tackle by the the Spanish policeman he was celebrating in very exuberant fashion as Herrada was coming up to the line Uh, I mean after the incident where Remco crashed into somebody after the finish line at the start of the race um, understandable perhaps that uh, security beyond the finish line is uh, tighter than perhaps it ordinarily would be but I don't know whether you saw that Daniel I did yeah I did see some images of that um, on GCN Eurosport after the finish um, but celebrate well they're entitled to do that aren't they Cofidis because it's turned into a fantastic season for them 14 victories so far and of course those two stage wins in the Tour de France after how long was their drought line oh, you mentioned it was, it? It was over, years over and years yeah it was 20, well, 2008 15 years yeah 
and they won with Victor Lafay and Jon Izaguirre at the Tour de France. Now they won with Jesus Herrada. So, uh, well, the, the Wheel of Fortune certainly turned in their favour this year. On that Lionel, uh, in that light, we're going to hear now from their director sportif, Bingen Fernandez, who was also a rider for Cofidis in much bleaker times for the team, wasn't he? And we're also going to hear from Geraint Thomas, who will shed a little bit more light on the decisions that were being made on the road between him and Filippo Ganna, and also probably in the Ineos Grenadiers team car this afternoon. Yeah, we know that Jesus is uh, good in, in this kind of uh, uh, finishes. Uh, we try. Uh, also, you you have key key days, but there are also other days that you don't have to to, to miss them. No, but uh, especially after the rest day, it was the first opportunity we had, and we we went for it, and we were lucky or strong or strong and lucky, and we we got it. And you were with the team when the team was finding it very hard to win stages in Grand Tours this year. Things have changed, haven't they? What what has changed? Is it just luck? Just good fortune? I think it's a lot of work behind. No? I think everyone works uh, hard. No, no, not uh, our riders. All the riders they work hard, especially the cycling now with all the watts and the everything, all that the uh, marginal gains and everything. So we all the peloton works hard, but sometimes uh, you go, you you touch the right uh, button in the keyboard, mm. and then it goes. No, and this year uh, we we are doing good, and then we we take it and then we enjoy it. Ideally, we wanted uh, two of us. And uh, me and Pipo was a good combination, but yeah, I said to him kind of halfway around, I was like, well, I'm not feeling great, but I don't know if the car thought I was being just a bit nervous or not confident, but I was being honest. And uh, they tried G me up and Pipo really wanted to commit to me and I really appreciated that. Just disappointed I couldn't finish it off. Um, just felt like I had no real real gas at the end, you know, like a bit limited, but you know, we gave it everything and um, yeah, that's, that's what we had on the day. How did you see Pippo today? We saw him killing everyone in that last climb after winning yesterday's time trial. But pretty amazing to see. Yeah, seeing him at the start just reminds me of Van Aert in the Tour when uh, last year maybe when Van Aert could just make a break happen and he was going and it was just the bunch was just splitting in the crosswind and he had Egan in the wheel and everyone was getting dropped. He was like making the break, you know, and uh, he's got so much gas and he's he's going so well. Um, and yeah, so it was great to have him there. But yeah, like I say, it's just. Uh, it was probably a bit too steep for him here, so he, he committed for for me. Unfortunately, like I say, I, I couldn't quite finish off, but we'll keep trying. And when you said that you weren't feeling great and you thought, well, maybe the climb's too steep for Pippa, was there a little doubt in your head? Did you sort of think, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's going well enough to, to go for the stage when ahead of me? Yeah, that's why I kind of said it um, to the car as well. Like, kind of, you know, maybe people could look after himself and uh, maybe have a go, but yeah, they they wanted to really get behind me and G me up and you know they had that confidence in me and they don't have my legs even and they can't really feel it but but I, you know I, it wasn't like I had just given up you know I still thought right okay then let's go for it and let's try and I knew I, I didn't I couldn't wait for the sprint but then you know people rode a hard pace but then once he had stopped and it was a bit stop start and I could just feel it like even at the start to be honest with all the jumping around like I was just like wow my legs man I'm just like over 500 watts it just feels like I'm really like limited and um, but it's coming it's, every day is a little bit better so just keep trying innit have a knees specifically uh, so I have to do activation in the morning which oh, I've never had to do any sort of physio so that's different um, what's activation look like? Oh, all this different sort of like with the physio pushing and pulling and you know he's pushing my leg one way and I gotta it's just switching switching on the muscles basically and uh so the, the knees don't feel as sore and tight in the back. Turbo warm-up, so you're ready to go and um, doing everything I can. Just keep going. Shoot, uh, shoot à l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's said PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel. Now, Daniel has no need for Babbel because he's already fluent in four of the 14 languages that you can learn using Babbel. Daniel is fluent in Spanish, French, Italian and German. And, well... 
unfortunately, most of the rest of us don't find learning languages as easy as Daniel found it. And that's where Babbel can come in. Whether you're learning a language from scratch or you want to build on what you already know, Babbel is a great way to put the building blocks of language learning one on top of the other until you make your way towards fluency. Babbel's 15-minute lessons are designed to be the most efficient and effective way to learn a new language. Basically, it's an app that you can call up whenever you have 15 minutes to just add to what you've learned. And the lessons are created by real people, 150 language experts. So you're learning from the very beginning real-world conversations that will come in handy when you're traveling, not computer-generated phrases that make you sound like you're a robot trying to fit in. Um, I've been using Babbel to learn a bit of Italian, and I'm hoping that when I get back to the Giro one of these days, I will be able to surprise Daniel with how much I have managed to learn. Now, if you're thinking of learning one of those 14 languages, maybe you've got a trip coming up next year and you just want to be able to get around, check into hotels, order meals at restaurants and generally not feel like a fish out of water when you're traveling in a country that speaks a different language. Sign up for Babbel because all of our listeners can get six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription. All you need is the promo code cycling. Go to babbel.com slash play and use the promo code cycling to get an extra six months free when you sign up for six months. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash play with the promo code cycling. Well, I know that was a very honest, um, I suppose pragmatic as well, Geraint Thomas, we heard him yesterday said that Ineos should, were going to treat this week as a series of one-day races. And they had a good go today, didn't they? But I did wonder about Filippo Ganna and, well, the, the, the form that Filippo Ganna's in and whether he could also have been an option today. We saw him do this fantastic pull. And, well, just as the, the lead group were coming past us, actually, that was the moment when Caicedo launched what looked at one stage as though it could be the winning attack. And that was when Ganna well, seemed to be cooked um, and, and was dropped. Then there was a little bit of a stalemate in that lead group and Caicedo was slowly reeled back in. And Ganna came back and it looked as though he might get a second bite of the cherry. But as we heard there, they were very, very much committed to Geraint Thomas. Um, but Lionel, I was slightly surprised that um, Remco Evenepoel didn't try and didn't start sort of chipping away at the the Sepkus or, or at least tried to start chipping away at the Sepkus lead today. Watching, re-watching the highlights from 2020, um, it was a pretty similar stage that day. There was a bigger climb earlier in the stage, but you know, to all intents and purposes, it was very, very similar um, in the, certainly in the last 50 kilometres or so. Um, there were time gaps that day, and Dan Martin won. Sort of surprisingly, he beat Primo Roglic, and the time gaps didn't really open up until late on the climb in the last kilometre, significant, well, a few seconds um, and of course on that occasion they were racing for the bonus seconds which wasn't the case today but you know it's a speed climb this is you could probably tell that on television it's not particularly steep until the last kilometer or so and i don't think it's the it's the kind of climb that would necessarily suit sepkus also they need to well remco is gonna have to start somewhere isn't he and he's basically got well he's got a week and a half now yeah, he is going to have to start somewhere. Uh, the problem he's got is that if he starts opening things up, then he's got to not just shed Sepp Kuss, but he's got to contend with Primoz Roglic. And so by sort of opening things up, he might, in fact, make himself more vulnerable to Roglic closing the small gap that he has to close. Well, it's a small gap. I mean, it's a, it's a, it would be enough to win the race if it stays like that all the way to Madrid. I just wonder whether Friday and Saturday stages are lurking in the minds a bit. You know, the Tourmalet, and then from the looks of the profile on Saturday, that's a difficult finish too. Um, maybe just felt with the fact that there were no bonus seconds as you often say the juice wouldn't have been worth the squeeze I mean what could he have gained I mean the gap between Herada and second place was three seconds and that was a heck of a jump from Herada 
uh, yeah, three seconds would be three seconds, wouldn't it? But yeah, and I, I think I think what he probably needs to do is test this sort of theory that some of us had. We talked about it yesterday. It is a theory. It's a hypothesis based on um, what we've seen of Sepkus in uh, in the sort of last kilometre or two of uphill finishes in the past, and and that's a sort of a false. Um, or it's a, a, a misleading body of evidence because he hasn't had to. He hasn't had to fight tooth and nail um, on the wheel of a big GC rider before because he's never even really gone for GC in small stage races. We have absolutely nothing to go on. I have sort of this suspicion that he's vulnerable. You know, when it gets really fast um, on the well, in the last couple of kilometres of fast climbs in particular. But um, I might, I may be wrong about that. But I do feel that Remco Evenepoel needs to keep squeezing and at least, at least see, um, at least test that hypothesis. Yeah, because these these things are all about just ramping up the pressure, aren't they? It, it might not have achieved something today. He might not have gained any time. Uh, I mean, I have to say, when Remco did move, Kuss was very alert and looked lively on the pedals and fast. It wasn't like a, a, a sort of a, a diesel engine trying to, you know, get through the gears. He was he was really alert and finished on the wheel. Really, I mean, uh, the results put Hugh Carthy in between them, but that's because they were coming back up to Hugh Carthy. Um, but you're right; it has to has to start putting the pressure on because if there's no pressure then there's less likelihood that Kuss will implode at some point which is obviously what Remco needs to happen um, the difficulty for Sudar Quickstep is they haven't really got anybody to set a pace for Remco that would put Jumbo Visma under pressure so in an odd way uh, Remco needs Jumbo Visma to set a pace to his liking and hope that that's not to set Kuss's liking, which is a, a, a bit of a kind of convoluted uh, way of looking at things. But that's sort of what he needs, isn't it? And, unless he's going to go uh, all guns blazing on every opportunity. And one of those opportunities has sort of slipped by today. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I suppose as a caveat, I should say that in 2020, again, having re-watched that footage, Sepkus did look very comfortable on this climb in 2020, and he was right there with Primoz Roglic, well, until the sort of sprint lead-out. Um, so, you know, if you believe in horses for courses, then maybe this was a climb that suited Sepkus pretty well. But it was interesting at the finish line that even Jumbo Visma themselves, or the two individuals that I spoke to, sort of disagreed about whether Remco Evenepoel could, maybe should have tried something today. So let's hear from them now, shall we? Let's hear first from the direct sportif, uh, Mark Rafe, and then we're going to hear from Jonas Vingegaard. Uh, Mark, no attack from Remco until, well, 200 metres from the finish. Do you think he might try to put pressure on Sepp today? Uh, you mean up front? Yeah. No, no, not, uh, not really. I mean, yeah, the chance was there, of course, with um, uh, with Quickstep taking control for a stage like this. But in the start, we saw already pretty soon that uh, yeah, that that yeah, there was a was a big fight for the break. Quickstep was not uh, not having any intentions to uh, to control something or to to go for it. And uh, yeah, when then 26 guys get in front, then also normally the chance is not really there. Of course, you always need to to be ready for for attacks and uh, and still something uh, with uh, with the final. 700 meters that are that were quite steep, but uh, yeah, all in all, I think that uh, that we just had a good day like this. We thought it was a, well, it was a fast climb, and maybe it might have been an opportunity to put you know maybe gap step in the last kilometer or something. But you, you're suggesting that that was never going to happen. No, no, I think that uh, that it was controlled. Everybody was aware of uh, of uh, of the climb and and of the chance. But I think that they're all waiting for uh, for Friday and Saturday. To be honest, I, th I think uh, I would have thought they would have uh, tried to go for it. Uh, but that's their choice, that's their tactics. Uh, we cannot influence that. Uh, we didn't want to go for it, so for us it was fine. Yeah, I mean, we're in a super good situation. So, uh, yeah, every day less is, uh, is good for us. So, Lionel, Jonas Vingegaard is sort of suggesting that he did expect something from Remco today or, or that maybe Remco could have tried something today and Mark Reef um, pouring water I suppose on that pouring cold water on that idea um, so yes Lionel slightly slightly discordant notes but ultimately well Jumbo Visma 
won't care too much because it was a, a really good day for them. Um, and Kuss, I suppose, will have feared that he might have been put under a bit more pressure, if not from Remco, then maybe from UAE or mm. even, you know, Bora have still got sort of one and a half cards and there are still plenty of people within striking distance in the general classification. So I suppose that the question now becomes, if not today, then where? Where in the next few days and what kind of terrain does Remco set about dethroning Sepp Kuss? Um, last night, Lionel, we well we stitched up Lucky Larry, the Motown maestro Larry Warbass, of ag 2 Age Deuxer Citroën, didn't we? Um, I revealed that well when Larry came over the line in the time trial yesterday, he suggested to me that Sepkus would have a very hard time keeping his red jersey. And Larry was wrong. Um, anyway, as Sep's compatriot and I suppose an impartial observer of this GC fight, sort of patriotic um, interests notwithstanding I thought it'd be interesting to get Larry's view on precisely that question where could Remco attack Sepkus over the next few days Arriba Larry Warbas Andale Andale Here he is, the enemy of the state, the man who said that Sepkus had no chance of keeping the jersey yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I will rephrase this because before the TT I thought he had a chance. During the TT, after Ghana went, I thought he didn't and I'm really glad that he kept it, so that's cool. You should be stripped of those stars and stripes that you wear so proudly on your sleeve every day. No, no, I'm a big supporter of him, you know, Uh, I just, yeah, I guessed wrong yesterday. Okay, Larry, since you are a sworn enemy of the state, um, it, well, or imagine you were, and imagine you were up against Sepkus, if you were Remco Evenepoel, you were UAE at this World Cup, how, where would you break Sep? I mean, I think you'd probably have to try to draw out his teammates more than him, you know? Uh, I almost can't see, I, I just yeah, said in another interview, the only people I can see beating Sep are his own teammates, so... Um, you know, I think in the climbs he's one of the strongest. So, I don't know. I guess the only thing Remco probably has on him is, uh, yes, he's stronger on the flats and he's maybe more punchy. So, you know, if there was another crosswind day, I'd try to do something there. But again, with the strength of his team, I think Sepp, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be hard to uh, get him off that top step. But, uh, yeah, I would say either in the crosswinds, if there are any to come. Tomorrow, maybe. Huh? Maybe tomorrow, the crosswinds. I mean, we hope not. I hope we just have an easy day. But, but uh, um, yeah, or on, like, a punchy finish uh, where he can maybe get a bit of time. But, you know, a minute is a long time to bring back on a punchy climb. Yeah, because looking at Seb's results in the past, it's almost looked as though he's, well, he's often lit time on those punchy finishes, but what we don't know is how much work he's been doing before that and whether he's been told to sit up. So it's difficult to get a real sort of firm grasp on, on where his weaknesses are. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the past he's always, you know, been just a helper and so he's always kind of sat up. So I would say the only other thing that... I could. I hope it doesn't happen, but you know, it is his third Grand Tour this year, and I could see him fatiguing uh, later into the race. But um, I mean, I hope not. I hope he keeps it to the end because that would be awesome to see. U.S. citizenship restored. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good. Good. I think the difficulty for Remco is that the next mountain stage, the one to the Col du Tourmalet, goes over the Orbisque and the Col de Spandel, and that is a kind of classic Tour de France style mountain stage isn't it up to the Tourmalet and that really is kind of Sepkus, Primoz Roglic, Jonas Vingegaard territory and I suppose we're we're kind of fixated on where is Remco going to crack Kuss but actually could Jumbo Visma put Remco out of the picture and sew it up for themselves over Friday and Saturday I mean that is a possibility Remco has got a lot to do and he hasn't got anyone around him to uh, you know, even lean on for kind of moral support. I mean, the, the three Jumbo Visma riders can, uh, they can respond, they can react. They, if one of them's not on such a great day, they're, 
they're in such a strong position as we said yesterday so I think looking to Remco ramping up the pressure on him to try and turn the tables on Sepp Kuss he might actually be vulnerable to um, being done himself maybe it's a possibility Yes, Lionel, and uh, you know there was a moment this morning at the start, at uh, the sign-in or sign-on in Lerma, when well, all the teams get called up. Well, it's one by one, and the teams have a time at which they they have to report to the start, and they go up on the podium and they get presented to the crowd. And Jumbo Visma were up there, and we we knew and we talked a lot about before the Vuelta how strong this team was. It was a dream team, but I also just watched them go up there and it occurred to me that none of them have got grazed knees none of them is complaining about any illness um, none of them has any big issue that we know about with poor form or anything along those lines and that's a, kind of been a rarity in the recent history of Jumbo Visma for all their success they have suffered a lot of misfortune crashes and you contrast that with um, Sudo Quickstep who are less experienced they have slightly oh, well not slightly I would say even they would admit they have less grand or pedigree than Jumbo Visma and and they did have their problems last week and we think they have overcome them on the whole but there was a bit of illness in the camp we heard about it from James Knox last week and um, that's another issue isn't it but I suppose if there is a thread of hope for Remco to cling to um, it's that it's not a given that 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 run of call it good fortune good riding good judgment will continue with Jumbo Visma and they've got a lot of interest that they need to look after they've still got Jonas Vingegaard they can't completely abandon Vingegaard can they he's too close on general classification to sacrifice him completely so that means they've got um, they've got five riders to look after three Um, and if one of those five was to have a problem then you know their resources would be spread even more thinly and Sepp Kuss has until now he's been the super domestique he's he's sort of done the work of two men in previous Grand Tours but if they were to lose one of the the remaining riders they've got so Wilco Kelderman or Attila Valtor if one of those two was to suffer poor form or some kind of illness then they might have a bit of a problem um, and this is a, a sort of question that was on my mind this morning, Lionel. And, uh, well, should we hear from one of those riders who's kind of been, you could say, negatively affected or affected in, in a way that really um, demands that he steps up um, by Sepp Kuss's success in this Vuelta España, and that is Attila Valta, who is riding his first Grand Tour for Jumbo Visma. Uh, Hungarian national champion of course he is Lionel the subject of today's Encuentro del Día El Encuentro del Día the meeting of the day enjoying yourself yes <laughs> pretty much um, Attila, i guess with the, the situation with sep means that maybe you move up the line um on the hilly stages that you have to do more work or your work later is that right just explain how it's working for you i uh, now that you say it yeah oh man uh, it's true i'm just thinking about it but what you say is true um of course we are in a situation with sep that uh we will go day by day because uh, he deserves it and we will, uh, I mean, uh, now he's also a protected rider and uh, would be really dumb not to do it and also he is the one who really deserves it. Uh, it's not just me saying this but especially Jonas, he really says that uh, at this situation maybe the tables turned a bit and he can do more uh, trying to anticipate and, and Sepp can sit on the back but yeah, it's uh, all of us has to do a bit, uh, bit more then because uh, then now it's three guys who who waiting for the final then it's just five guys who who has to do the work so yeah it will be difficult but i mean we have five super strong guys uh, so yeah i think we we should be able to do it and yeah so far we are in also in a in a phase now where we we can be also defensive so it's not up to us to to work super hard for the breakaways like uh, the other day robert hessing did so we don't have to like sacrifice riders this way because we are uh, yeah quite in pole position with sep so it's up to other teams to to bring down the breakaway for example and then we still have yeah five guys before the big three uh, so i think we'll be pretty okay and as well, just listening to what the guys said after the time trial yesterday sep and also jonas it seemed as though there might be a bit of a, a reassessment last night that Sepp 
is now more confident that he can actually go for GC and Jonas maybe decided last night that he's ready to sacrifice himself for Sepp. Is that, am I reading that right? Yeah, a little bit, but I, I, um, I mean, uh, obviously Jonas was, uh, wanted to do more in the TT, especially what he did in the Tour, of course, that's, that's normal that you have high expectations, but he still finished top 10 in a flat TT where he's, uh, yeah, he's one of the lightest weight uh, among them among the, the top 10 so I think he still did a good time trial and you cannot have that uh, crazy shape what he had in the tour for, for all the season obviously so I, I, I still think that he's in contact so we shouldn't really like just let him go because he still just have like a, a short minute to Remco it's, it's nothing after uh, 11 days I think so yeah he's ready to, to work more he said that's what he said and, and Sepp I think he's ready to, to believe more and more every day by day for for this big goal but I think for him it's also super nice we just spoke in Barcelona at the start of the of the Vuelta that yeah he is just uh, so humble and he's so, so happy to work for others so it's not a problem for him even when he feels that he's the strongest it's just nice to work for someone so in this scenario he was really not greedy and not eager to to to, to do something he even when he won the stage he tried to help his teammates by being in the front, make, creating a good situation. So in this way, I think he also has no pressure on him. And that's I, I think that's a deadly uh, scenario when you really have nothing to lose. You already did uh, two Grand Tours, you did more than you wanted. I think Sepp uh, could have a really good uh, Vuelta also after this, like that, without pressure. Last thing, Attila, your battery started at 100% in Barcelona. Where is it now? How many, what percent would you say your energy levels? Uh, for me, that was the hardest uh, first nine days of a Grand Tour. It was harder than any Giro. I did three Giros and it was harder so far for me, but mainly because I had a lot of work to do. So it was not really days where I can just take it easy and sit in the back of the bunch. And yeah, if I lose one, two minutes, it's okay. Now it's still, if I lose any time, it's okay, but I have to be there in the end and, and I have to pull in the wind. So even the stage seven with the crashes in the end, I did uh, the last uh, one and a half, two hours over 300 average watts, which is nothing crazy, but the others did the fun 50. So it was a complete rest day, but for me it wasn't. And it, it is the same for, for, for Robert, for, for Dylan, for Jan. So yeah, it was really demanding, but yeah, maybe I, I went a bit uh, lower than I wanted. Maybe around 50% I lost, but in these two rest days I really feel recovered. And I think that's the... That's the, the engine, that's the endurance, what we have now, I feel almost 100% again. So this is really nice because, yeah, I was a bit afraid that, yeah, after nine days, it was so, so hard. It was the highest uh, training stress score for me in one week ever. Higher than Basque, higher than uh, Dauphiné. So that's, that's uh, yeah, I was surprised also that how hard is it. But now, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel I'm back. And also with the big gaps in the GC, I think also the peloton will be a bit more relaxed, I hope. I'll let you go. We need to keep that battery level up yes, there. Yes, thank you so much. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Well, that was Attila Vuelta. Aye? Aye? Oh, Jumbo oh, Visma. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that was a real hump day pun wasn't it <laughs> all, down, um, all downhill from here <laughs> um i did yeah, also mean well, to I, think I did also mean to ask whether the three brothers in this uh this rather dark story from uh, the, the black lagoon there were called sep primos and jonas i felt it was unlikely <laughs> no but of course the herada brothers are riding this Vuelta España together and they're, they're also sharing a room. Um, I also, just occurred to me that um, they are from a place called, I think it's called Mota del Cuervo. Cuervo means crow in Spanish and I, I made some, there was some reference to vultures earlier, wasn't there? Um, Jesus Herrada sw- swooping down um, in vulture-like fashion to win at this stage of the Vuelta Espana. Brothers, but he's an brothers interesting sharing writer, a room. Are they in bunk beds? Um, <laughs> no, I think I think the um, the accommodation for all the criticism of the Vuelta organisers on this um, year's edition. Um, I haven't had too many complaints about hotels, um, but a long way still to go. Um, Lionel Jesus Herrada. 
Um, he's an impressive rider, isn't he? And when you see him win in the fashion that he won today, although he has had a fine career and he's won these three stages of the Vuelta, um, sometimes you sort of wonder, is he someone who could have... Of course, he spent a lot of time in the team now known as Movistar, but is he a rider who could have achieved even more? Um, well, I know a man who's probably got some forthright and well-informed opinions on that um it's been two three days since we've heard from him should we have some wistful gazing some fran fran reeseando fran reeseando wistful gazing with fran reyes hello dear listeners of the cycling podcast here I am in Vinuesa after spending a day in what they call empty Spain. Some people find this part of the country as sad. And I, for one, even if I admit that it is sad to see houses that are orphans of the families that once populated them, I kind of like the feeling of being on a region on which you can hear from a hundred meters afar what is happening around you. Don't think that it is necessary for every square meter of the world to be subject of high speed phone networks and the stress of modern life. Today we finish in the dark lake atop Vinuesa and uh, Jesus Herrada, today's winner, is one that has been kind of in the dark for several years of his sporting career. He turned pro on Movistar, we, on this time on which the team was fully devoted to Nairo Quintana and Alejandro Valverde. And the hierarchy was a bit asphyxiating for young talents to, to thrive. It was funny because everyone talked wonders about Jesus back in the day. They knew about his power. They knew that he, has, he had beaten Peter Sagan on an uphill finish on this Nations Cup junior race back in the day. They knew that he was capable of winning in the World Tour as he did on an uphill finish of the Criterium de Dauphine. And the biggest talking point about him is how level-headed he was. What a good person he was. I remember how Pablo Lastras told me about him, that he, was admi- that he admired how he had used his first years of salary to, be, to, buy, sorry, to buy a track and not a proper Audi sports car, as most riders would do, because he wanted a car that would enable him to bring his bikes around to training camps and such. He himself, Pablo Lastras, he defined me, Jesus, as too gentle of a person in order to be a professional bike rider. Because as a cyclist, sometimes you need to assert yourself. You need to take your, to to, to stand in your ground, you know, take a stand. And um, for Jesus, this point didn't come until the year 2017. In 2017, Movistar wanted to extend his contract, yet they didn't want to renew his brother, Jose. Uh, Jose, he was a bona fide domestic for Nairo Quintana. He had won a Giro and a Vuelta with him, if I am not mistaken. Yet he had had a couple of below par seasons and they didn't want to keep him anymore. The Errada family is a very tight one. From also from another corner of empty Spain, Mota del Cuervo, in the province of Cuenca. Jesus, in these negotiations, he chose to stand. He chose to stand by his brother. And since Movistar wouldn't keep him, they found a new home for both of them, over at Cofidis. With Cofidis, his career changed completely. He got to discover the Vuelta, which is a Grand Tour that he really liked and that on which he had asked time and again to participate. Yet Movistar preferred to bring him to the Tour de France, on which he was very useful as a domestic for Quintana and Valverde. Time has passed and it has seen Jesus become another version of himself. He has become a killer rather than a, just a good man. And he has scored 
14 victories for Cofidis, three of them stages of La Vuelta. It was very funny for, to, for me to hear a nice person like Jesus is as a monster. This was the word that uh, Frenchman uh, Romain Grégoire used to define Jesus Herrada on the day of a triumph that has another uh, beautiful aspect in the fact that the Herrada family was here to witness it in first person and that Jesus has dedicated this victory to the memory of a friend of his, also named Jesus, who passed away some months ago. So, beautiful victory and full of heart. Always good to hear from Fram, Lionel. Indeed, indeed. Is he, is he stepping into the lineup over the next few days while I'm, uh, I'm again on, uh, on rest day duty? I think he is, although unfortunately Fran is leaving the Vuelta in, on the next rest day, mm. I believe. Um, I can't remember what it was. It was some intriguing reason, I seem to remember. Preparing for the, uh, du but I can't preparing for the duo Normand or something. With, yeah, know. yeah, something like that. Or, I don't know, some kind of... Maybe it was an Enrique Iglesias con concert that he was attending, something along those lines. Um, talking of concerts last night, well, I mentioned the Fiestas de Verano in Valladolid, and... Well, they were even more raucous, even more rowdy last night than the previous night. But what a fantastic couple of days we had in Valladolid, um, a city of 300,000 people. It felt like about 2 million um, last night. Um, we're hoping, I'm hoping that we're going to catch up with a few more fiestas de verano as we make our way. Well, sort of north after today, we're going to Zaragoza tomorrow, another very beautiful beautiful city and um, big and grand northern Spanish city unfortunately we won't be staying there I think we're staying in Huesca after tomorrow's stage but um, yes very enjoyable time in Valladolid did you get dinner um, but we are did you get dinner that was we it. got I did go uh, yeah it was a bit tippy tappy and mm. um, we were with our colleague Andy Hood who of course is a long-term resident of Spain um, very very well assimilated into Spanish life is Andy Hood, the Velo News, long-time Velo News correspondent. And um, Andy tends to, um, well, he tends to forego uh, what, what you and I would consider a, a sort of a meat and two veg, not meat anymore for me, but um, a sort of square evening meal in favour of tapas, tippy tapas. And that's, it was a bit tippy tappy last night, but it was pretty good, it was pretty good. Um, we were in an excellent wine region, of course, and we were sort of on the edge of Ribera del Duero, Tree and uh, yeah, some of that was enjoyed last night. Lionel, tomorrow we're heading. Well, I said to Zaragoza, we're sort of heading east. You're going to tell us about tomorrow's stage. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, Lionel, what have we got? What have I got in store tomorrow? Please? Well, it's a transitional type stage. It could be a break, could be a sprint. The finish looks ideal for the sprinters, but whether or not a big break goes, uh, well, it's downhill from the start, and then there's a, a little climb, and then there's a bigger climb around two-thirds of the way through the stage before the downhill run to the finish in Zaragoza, as you say. It's a short one, 150.6 kilometres, so you'd have to think that the, the peloton would have to have their brakes on if they're going to let a brake go clear. So I'm going to say it will probably be a sprint tomorrow. What do you reckon? Well, this is a part of Spain where in the past we have seen some echelon some crosswinds i am just actually going to bring up velo viewer which we talk about often on the cycling podcast that's the resource that most of the teams use to plan their well their, their tactics their strategies for every stage i was just going to look at the wind direction and speed for tomorrow but that's could be a possibility um we heard the Motown maestro Larry earlier talking about maybe sort of unexpected places where Remco could attack Sepkus. Maybe, Lionel, if the wind blows tomorrow, could be could be an option. Um, of course, he's well. The point I made earlier about his very strong team, Sepkus is very strong team. It's it certainly applies to to 
tomorrow stage if the wind does blow based on what we saw two or three days ago on the way to Caravaja de la Cruz and um, finally got got Vela Vieira up now the wind uh, doesn't look particularly strong we're sort of 14 15 kilometers an hour there will be some crosswinds i think in the finale 15 kilometers an hour is that enough to split something that's borderline i would say it depends how exposed the roads are i think they are pretty exposed but what do you think line of 15 kilometers an hour is that a bit tippy tappy yeah it depends i mean if there was somebody that really really wanted to do it like the sudal quickstep classics team of a few years ago or you know luke rowe or somebody possibly but yeah a little bit borderline but you you never know i mean i think that's sort of one thing about the welter isn't it it, it is unpredictable and in the past we've we've looked at a stage and thought well not much we'll be doing tomorrow and then all hell breaks loose i mean you'll be in formigal yeah, in no. a couple of days time won't you and uh, that's the scene of one of the most extraordinary stages where uh, well chris yep. room and co got caught out big time didn't they so it can happen that's that's the thing about the Walter. and there's a real history of um, formigal hosting very dramatic stages and stages that have brought about sort of seismic changes on general classification we had uh, another very significant stage there um, i think it was in 2020 with one by jon izaguirre in some of the worst conditions i've ever covered a bike race in um polar conditions up at the top in formigal so yeah and, and don't forget lionel as well that although today looked like a fairly sort of turgid affair in the general classification group we keep hearing that this was has been incredibly hard so far larry mentioned it yesterday we heard earlier from attila walter talks about his strain score his stress score from the first week and um, being the highest he's ever seen higher than a tour of the basque country or a dauphine um do you keep you do you keep do you log your strain your stress score every week lionel um not digitally i, I i'm just so in tune uh, you know the ladybird book of body language just I mean, I've got a permanent reading on the inside of my eyelids. Don't worry about that. Indeed, indeed. So, yeah, there are a lot of tired legs in the peloton. Um, and, and, you know, we, we might start to see some cracks that haven't appeared thus far in, in various teams, in various places. Um, we don't expect to see them. But, um, yes, Lionel, we're, we're starting to get into the, well, into the real teeth of the welter now. And it's fabulous that it's so finely so delicately poised still isn't it and um, it's a long time i think since we've seen a, a grand tour with so many okay you know we still think it's it's going to be one of maybe three or four but in theory in theory there are even more riders than that who could still win this world Espanol. there aren't many who have had sort of disasters thus far um, which you know, usually in Grand Tours these days, it is the case. Someone in the first mountaintop finish, someone um, capsizes completely, and that hasn't really happened. So a lot to look forward to. Um, Lionel, I think that's all we've got time for this evening. Yes, I've just got um, a couple of, with you. couple of bits of business first, Daniel, before we go. First of all, a, a small corrections corner. Uh, yesterday we were talking about sodium bicarbonate or uh, bicarb, and I said that it counteracts uh, lactic acid. And uh, Jack Evans, listener, writes to say that's not quite the case. Uh, it counteracts rising acidity in the muscles caused by metabolic waste products such as hydrogen ions but not lactate so that's my misunderstanding of the matter i'm not going to compound my misunderstanding of the matter by uh, badly paraphrasing jack's email or indeed the article that he wrote for the bike radar website but if you want to check that out i'm sure you'll be able to find it in the nutrition section on the bike radar website and finally everyone will remember that stacy snyder's cups which went on sale on the opening day of the welter sold out uh, she's also sold the last remaining stock of her handmade cups and mugs from this season's grand tour collections and she has pulled the money for the tour de france the tour de france fam and the vuelta a España. and it's up to us to decide where to donate that money what cause or causes should benefit from that and well we've had a few emails in and we've decided to split the money between the dave rayner fund and the cycling academy up in scotland both organizations which help young riders who dream aspire to becoming professional riders and uh, we felt that that would be appropriate and that richard would 
have uh, supported that. So we will be in touch with the Dave Rayner Fund and the Cycling Academy and the money will wing its way to those two organisations to support the Grand Tour riders of the future from, well, Britain and Ireland and, in the case of the Cycling Academy, Scotland. Final final thing, very final thing, Lionel. I think we also had some correspondence about our lack of interviews with Portuguese riders. Now, I started to rectify that this morning. I had a nice chat with Nelson Oliveira, which we'll maybe play tomorrow. Uh, I think he's riding his ninth Vuelta a España. So that was, it was good to catch up with him. And also had a long chat this morning with Hugh Carthy. And that may well be tomorrow's Encuentro del Día meeting of the day, even though, well, it happened today, which will be yesterday, tomorrow. On that slightly confusing note, Lionel, I'm going to say buenas tardes. Good night. Enjoy dinner. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.